Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Morning Shot. Welcome to Morning Shot. I'm Audrey Seek. Mental health has come under the spotlight in recent years, and Singapore is redoubling efforts to give this issue the serious attention it has long deserved. As part of a recent parliamentary motion on advancing mental health, members of parliament weighed in on the surge in mental health issues among youths. They also discussed how the government can better work with researchers around the world to study the causes of this worrying trend and to ensure the nation builds the necessary understanding, policies and infrastructure to cope with the issue. For more insights, we're joined by Dr. Wang Chinyi, research fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies Social Lab. Dr. Wong, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on and thanks for joining us. To kick things off, let's delve into youth and mental health. What makes youths possibly more susceptible to mental health issues? And has this vulnerability been a constant over the years? Well, there's actually a few sides to this story. I think the answer isn't so straightforward, but I can try to explain where I'm coming from. So on one hand, there are some compelling reasons for us to believe that today's youths are facing unique generational challenges. This can make them more susceptible to mental struggles. So some of these challenges will be growing on era dominated by social media and technology. So the youths are constantly bombarded with information that can impact their well-being. And beyond the effects of constant connectivity and information overload, social comparisons are also fueled by social media. And many studies have suggested that well-being can be impacted more by perceived or relative standing than our just circumstances. And some recent research also highlights that the digital landscape can foster feelings of social isolation and anxiety, while the very competitive educational economic landscape today adds further stresses to the mental journey. But this is actually the entire story, and um, greater societal awareness and education surrounding mental health have also led to more young people seeking help and receiving diagnosis too. Beyond being more vulnerable, today's youths are more attuned to mental health issues than previous generations, and this likes to heighten prevalence figures as well. Maybe I can also address a little bit about uh, whether this has always been the case over the years. So um, the other aspect of that would be that mental health challenges during youth can be attributed to the natural process of identity formation and also brain development. So adolescence is a period of significant psychological and also physiological development. And it's not uncommon for young people to grapple with emotional turbulence as they navigate this transitional phase. We can be particularly hard to manage because the brain is also in the midst of developing important functions such as cognitive control, self-regulation through areas like our prefrontal cortex as well. So Singapore's National Mental Health and Wellbeing Strategy takes a more holistic approach. They intertwine health and social and education settings. So could you walk us through the complexities and connections in addressing mental well-being across all of these different settings? Certainly, interconnectedness is um, likely to be particularly important for our youth in Singapore, given that there are a lot of stressors and also intervention touch points exist in this kind of social educational settings for young people. And our own study IPS suggests that younger respondents are actually more likely to hope for greater mental health support in schools and in workplaces, essentially in place. So there is at least some expectation or preference among this generation that schools or workplaces will support mental health needs as well, rather mm-hmm. than relying on more institutional forms of support. And on a more positive side, we will say that this interconnectedness can positively impact help-seeking behaviours as individuals may prefer um, informal sources of support within their existing environments. And this would at the very least increase the ease 
our stairs and lower the barriers of help seeking. This is crucial for addressing mental health concerns before they escalate. Um, the other part of it is that the, these different forms of support, they can serve different purposes as well. So as mentioned by DPM Wong last week, there is a distinction between well-being challenges that result from factors such as stress or anxiety and mental health problems that may require more specialised clinical attention. So this interconnected system allows us to funnel the later cases more easily and consistently from schools, for instance, to the healthcare system, while well-being problems can be managed in place and this avoids overloading our specialised healthcare professionals. And of course, well-being concerns can become more severe over time and eventually require clinical intervention as well if we don't attend to them early. So this is also a preventive measure in that sense. When we talk about the, the intricacies of implementing these initiatives, that, that will be a little bit more challenging in reality. Mm. So there are issues such as um, how, how do we segment roles, how do we track outcomes, and even things like um, confidentiality of data and medical records. This needs to be carefully coordinated among the professionals from different fields. And of course, this also means that we are involving non-medical professionals in the early intervention stages, and this can be challenging in terms of things like continuity of care and appropriate diagnosis and referrals as well. All right, Dr. Wong, you talked about stress and anxiety there. You know, shifting gears to the impact of COVID-19 on mental health awareness, that period of time was really when the focus on mental health came to the fore. Um, How would you gauge our current understanding of mental health conditions? And are there common misconceptions that we need to address? There's a lot of encouraging signs with this greater emphasis. So clearly, there is a lot more public education awareness today when it comes to mental health conditions. And on the whole, we can say that the mental health literacy has increased tremendously over the recent years. So even for clinicians, they may find that prospective patients can come to them with knowledge of the signs and symptoms of different clinical disorders. But we need to recognize that there's also tiers to mental health awareness. Some conditions like depression or anxiety, they're more widely understood, more widely accepted. Others remain misunderstood mm. or stigmatized, things like schizophrenia or bipolar disorders. Yeah. So there is still a gap in this sense in helping people understand some of the thresholds that warrant clinical attention as well. And when we talk about um, some of these common misperceptions, um, one of them would be the conflation of mental health with well-being or wellness. So mental well-being is indeed an essential aspect of overall wellness, but mental health conditions can require specialized attention and treatment as well. Although it can be well-intentioned, characterizing mental health conditions as purely well-being issues, this can minimize the challenges of those individuals who are afflicted with more significant mental health problems too. And there's also a misconception that's driven in part by social media, where we often see a prevailing narrative that focuses on topics like self-care, self-acceptance, where we talk about improving well-being outcomes. And these individual practices are, of course, very important, and they set a strong foundation for wellness. But we sometimes neglect the wealth of research that highlights more community-focused elements, things like social connections or relationships, things like helping other people. These are actually some of the strongest predictors of overall well-being as well. One last misconception is perhaps regarding the treatment and prognosis for mental health conditions with the idea that these conditions always require medication or lifelong treatment when in reality treatment can involve um, psychological therapies alongside or even in place of medication and conditions can also stabilize and no longer require treatment as well. Those are some really good points and you can't paint this issue with a broad brush. Uh, You spoke a bit about social media and this era where much of our interaction happens online, particularly for the younger generation. Does this make it challenging to distinguish between social isolation and physical isolation. 
this will definitely make it more difficult to determine whether someone is truly socially isolated. And this also makes it more difficult to reach out to these kind of isolated individuals. So to tackle this, we actually need to assess social isolation more holistically. So after all, feelings of social isolation, they have a large subjective component in that I can be surrounded by friends, but still feel alone or left out. And to accurately assess this, it's important for us to consider multiple dimensions of social connectedness. So a more holistic approach involves more than just counting the number of online and offline interactions, but also evaluating the quality, quantity, diversity of social network, and as well as more subjective feelings of loneliness and social support. So for instance, uh, many used in local studies they report having fewer and fewer friends over time, especially in the aftermath of the pandemic. But they simultaneously report that there are people they can turn to and people they can trust. So this is what we call um, bonding character and studies suggest that these ties have actually not weakened over time and furthermore that in fact individuals who prefer and actively choose solitude and may not experience any distress with being physically and socially isolated as well. So assessments of social isolation need to account for all these different aspects since um, physical isolation can indeed contribute to feelings of social isolation as well. And since Singapore is experiencing a rapid demographic shift towards smaller households, which has implications on the kind of um, social interactions and connections that we experience as well. Yeah, so Dr. Wong, let's talk about the areas where Singapore might need a bit of reinforcement in the realm of mental health. What are some key aspects that could use a boost, do you think? Singapore is doing very well and doing a lot in different areas. So we have been increasing our efforts in addressing mental health issues, expanding mental health services, reducing stigma, enhancing access to care. But there's always room to grow. And some of the low-hanging fruits will be addressing some of these common misperceptions that we spoke about just now. This can help us to bring about a bit more nuance to the public understanding of well-being of mental health. So greater awareness is the first step. And one way we can do this is to have some form of um, regular or even compulsory mental health education for students. And this can be conducted by individuals who have been diagnosed with mental health conditions, such as um, peer support specialists who are trained and certified by IMH and Social Service Institute. Since higher level of contact and exposure is generally associated with better knowledge and reduced stigma. And a second area would relate to the role of psychologists. They play a crucial role in mental health care and recovery. And they do this alongside psychiatrists who are medically trained. A very recent article in the Straits Times on Monday highlights this issue. For instance, there are some restrictions on using treatment as an advertising term for private practitioners. And this can um, delegitimize the long-established efficacy of psychological therapies in mental health care. And a stronger professional regulatory framework or body, they can provide greater recognition to the very important work that psychologists do, while also increasing both standards and accountability. Before we let you go, Dr. Wong, mental health in the workplace is also gaining significant attention. What measures do you believe should be implemented to create an environment where employees with mental health needs feel comfortable seeking help, uh, free from the stigma often associated with workplace discussions? I think there's a bit of a disconnect here in that work stressors are generally among the strongest factors that are associated with poor mental health. So this is evidently an avenue for intervention. But at the same time, there is perhaps not a lot that can be instituted as some measure may not be so easy to regulate or enforce. So to address that, we may need a tier approach. First off, in terms of what we may be able to mandate. So if we want people to treat mental health conditions and needs on the same level as physical health conditions and needs, then we need to extend employee benefits, such as medical coverage or subsidies, to mental health-related um, consultations and treatments as well. And this will gradually normalize mental health at the workplace and help to drive a mindset shift that mental health needs are not different from physical health needs. 
And although it may not be feasible to institute many other mandatory measures, there are also still steps that we can take to provide a more accepting or supportive workplace culture. So some good to have include access to things like counselling services at the workplace and conducting regular reviews of employee well-being and work stresses as part of workplace health risk assessments. After all, we are intending to provide an interconnected system in which healthcare educational settings are serving complementary functions, for instance. It will be glaring if you lose out on the workplace as another avenue for preventive work for early referral to formal institutional support when necessary, given how much time we all spend at the workplace. And finally, um, last softer touch point in supporting employment health is the promotion of healthy workplace practices and also work-life balance. So implementing policies such as flexible work arrangements, parental, parent care leave, um, setting of healthy working boundaries. This can help to reduce stress, prevent burnout and improve the overall quality of life for employees as well. So given that work stressors can be just a strong component of well-being outcomes, these are all steps that we can take to help us create a workplace culture that is more supportive of our employees' well-being needs as well. All right. Well, we were navigating the complexities of mental health from understanding youth vulnerabilities to exploring strategies for workplace well-being. Thanks, Dr. Wong, for your insights this morning. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Dr. Wang Chin Yi, Research Fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies Social Lab. Keep it here on Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A W E D I O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.